Welcome to Living Word Ministries with director and Bible teacher, Debbie Blank. Each week, Debbie examines current events through the lens of end times Bible prophecies. Please visit our website for information and past programs at livingwordministry.org. Now let's open our Bibles to focus on truths from God's Word with Debbie Blank. Whenever a catastrophic event is predicted, people often will describe it as Armageddon. That name signals a vast, decisive conflict or confrontation. It means total devastation or final destruction. There was even a movie in 1998 with Bruce Willis called Armageddon because of the potential annihilation of Earth by an asteroid. This word, like many other common phrases in our culture, comes directly from the Bible. Because there is a time when God will bring the armies of the world to destruction, along with devastation to the earth, that will all start at the place called Armageddon, or as we know, Megiddo. Today we're focusing on the end of the tribulation, God's final judgment on this world. Many call this last part of the tribulation the battle of Armageddon, but the fact is the Bible actually calls it a war. A battle is one event, a war is ongoing. And I can see really that the whole seven years of the tribulation is a war culminating in the final battles of Armageddon and thereafter. I'm Debbie Blank, urging you to buckle your seatbelts because Armageddon is coming and we're moving quickly in that direction. And I'm co-host Jackie Sailors. Already in Revelation 16, five bowls of God's final wrath have been poured out on a morbidly sinful and evil world. Anyone who took the mark of the beast is now suffering with horrendous and excruciating boils. The waters have turned to blood, the sun is scorching the people with fire, and the kingdom of the beast has been plunged into fearsome darkness as people chew their tongues in pain. Now the last two angels stand ready to pour out the final judgments, which bring about the War of Armageddon and the judgment of Babylon the Great. These judgments will be devastating and complete, acts of perfect justice from the perfect, righteous, and almighty God. Remember Jesus told us in Matthew twenty four twenty one, For then there will be a great tribulation, such as has not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever shall. Jesus said this was going to happen. He said it was going to be worse than we can ever imagine. What's the worst thing we've ever seen? They say that World War I was the war of all wars, the worst of all. It lasted four years and killed about 16 million people. But then we had World War II. World War II lasted six years and killed up to 80 million people. Well, that is nothing compared to what we're seeing here. During the tribulation period, we've seen a fourth of the world killed. We've seen then a third of the world killed. So you add those together and that's half the world that has died from war and pestilence. That doesn't include the people that have been martyred who did not take the mark of the beast. It doesn't include the other people who died from various plagues and things that happened. So you have the worst devastation during this time period than we've ever seen. We have to get our hearts wrapped around that because if we will, we're going to want to make sure we do not participate in this, that we turn to Jesus now before it's too late because I don't know how people are going to survive going through all this and not just the devastation to mankind and the world, but to see God's anger and his wrath poured out. 
is something that we've not experienced before. That's just what I was thinking is we have never seen a world where God's grace has not been infused into the world. We don't know what that's like. We think that things are bad now (laughs) because in a lot of ways they are. But to have the grace of God just absolutely missing and totally be in the midst of the wrath of God is something we can't imagine nor would we want to know. But God is giving us warning and giving us details as we continue in chapter 16 of Revelation. And even in chapter 16, with this thumos wrath of God poured out, he still tells us in verses 5, 6, and 7 how awesome he is and what a just God he is in bringing about this judgment because God cannot tolerate sin. So with that in mind, let's turn to Revelation 16, 12, where we learn about the battle of Armageddon. It tells us that the sixth angel poured out his bowl upon the great river, the Euphrates, and its water was dried up that the way might be prepared for the kings of the east. Let's stop here for a minute and think that in the sixth trumpet, we also saw the river Euphrates, how it was dried up so a 200 million man army could cross it and kill a third of the people on the earth. Well, that trumpet judgment is similar, but it is not the same. Some people will tell you that the trumpet judgments and the bowl judgments are the same judgments because they're so similar. But if you separate them out as to what they actually say, they are different. So this time, the Euphrates River is going to be dried up. How is that possible? The river is 1,780 miles long. Well, the Turks dried it up in 1991 when they built the Ataturk Dam. It can happen. As a matter of fact, the Turks have 635 mega dams in their country, in their country skirts part of the Euphrates. There's lots of ways that it could be dammed up or it could be dammed up because God allows it. Perhaps it's dammed up because of the blood that's been flowing through the rivers and how people don't want that coming into their area. Who knows how it's going to happen? But we know from this that it's going to happen for a reason. And that's so the kings of the east can cross over it. So who are the kings of the east? Well, it's anybody who's east of the Euphrates River, which would be Iraq and Iran and India and Pakistan and certainly anyone from the north that would come that way to come into the Holy Land. Well, it's really interesting because you talked about the drying up of the Tigris and Euphrates area, those rivers. And we now know, as you said, that that's naturally possible. It can happen now through those dams, and it's also supernaturally possible. People used to think, well, that's just not possible, so they kind of discounted this. But you also look at the 200 million man army, and that used to not be possible either. In fact, the population of the world wasn't even that when this book was written. And yet we now have various possibilities of armies that could add up to 200 million men, including just China by itself or a conglomeration of those countries that you mentioned. So again, it can happen in the natural, certainly, or possibly in the supernatural. Who are the kings of the East going to follow? Why are they crossing the Euphrates? It tells us in verse 13, I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet, three unclean spirits like frogs, for they are spirits of demons performing signs which go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them together for the war of the great day of God, the Almighty. Oh, this is power pack. Verse 13, you have the dragon, the beast, who is the Antichrist, and the false prophet, all mentioned. This is the unholy trinity. The dragon would represent God, the Father. 
The beast, the Antichrist, would represent Christ, and the false prophet would represent the Holy Spirit because he is pointing the people to the Antichrist just as the Spirit points us to Jesus Christ. It says they are three unclean spirits, so we know these are not God or anything to do with God. These have been identified in the book of Revelation as Satan, the Antichrist, and the false prophet who are antithesis of God, who hate God, who blaspheme him, who are trying to lead the world astray. And it says that these spirits of demons, they're performing signs. We saw the false prophet performing all kinds of signs in Revelation 13 so that he could point the people to worship the Antichrist and to worship Satan. And now these signs, which are different, are going to go out to the kings of the earth because they're gathering them together to fight God. Now, how arrogant is that, that they actually think that they can go up and defeat God? But they do. It's amazing how people think that they are more intelligent or stronger, have more power than the God who created the universe. That is the ultimate arrogance, but it's also the ultimate deception. And remember that Satan is the God of deception. So he's going to blind their eyes to believe what he's saying because they are going to be the one that sends out their demons to perform the signs that persuade and manipulate all these kings to come follow after them. Um, I'm glad you brought that up about deception because I was thinking of what was coming out of the mouths of these three so-called religious leaders. Uh, people have set themselves up as God, the unholy trinity, as you said. So we have these three unclean spirits that are like frogs. Why frogs? Um, it could be that that's kind of repulsive. You, you can imagine frogs coming out of the mouths of someone. It reminds me of the movie Alien. Pretty shocking when, when something like that happens. But also... I read about how frogs capture their prey with their tongues. So there's a symbolism to that as well. They're deceiving with their tongues. And keep in mind, it says like frogs. So it is a simile. It's an example of what frogs do. It's not frogs. Keep in mind, it says in verse 14, that they gather together for the war of the great God of the Almighty. This is a war. A war isn't one day. A war is a multiple period of time of battles that take place. The Greek word means war, while another word that's used in the Greek, macho, is a battle or a single event. So we have something that's going to take time for this to happen. It's not just going to happen at Megiddo. It's going to start there, but it's going to continue on many other places. And when I mention Megiddo, let me read verses 15 and 16, because here it says, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. But who's talking here? Jesus. He's coming like a thief. And you think, well, that's strange. Why would Jesus be compared to a thief? But you have to go back to his words in Matthew 24, 42 to 44, where he said, therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the household had known at what time of the night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour when you do not think he will. So when Jesus said he's coming as a thief, he's simply saying he's coming at an hour when people don't expect him to come. That again surprises me because the Bible gives us clear indication as to the exact timing and circumstances and events that will take place before his return. 
But remember, these people are not looking to the Bible. They're following Satan and he's deceiving them. And he's probably telling them that the Bible's a lie and it's not true and that nothing in the Bible can be trusted. And so therefore they need to listen to him and he's giving them the truth and uh, fake news and all the things that we hear about. So people are going to be so deceived, they're not going to be able to recognize the truth. I think I was a little surprised by this verse being where it was. As you're explaining it, it's set in parentheses in my translation. And so, and I was taking it as a parenthetical and I thought, could he be just taking time right then and there to remind those of us who are reading this, not to even get this far, but to be ready when Jesus comes for us in the rapture. So, you know, you can read into things whatever you want to, but I just thought, you know, scratch my head as to why that particular remark would be placed right there in that account. If it's in parentheses, as it is in our Bible, that means it's not in the original text. So they have found it in other texts, but not in the original Greek, in this case, Greek, not Hebrew. Therefore, we don't know that this is exactly inspired, but it certainly makes sense because it fits in with what Jesus said in Matthew 24, which was a discussion of the tribulation period. So it's just another reminder that Jesus is superior. He's in control. He's sovereign over all. And he said, blessed is the one who stays awake and keeps his garments. What does it mean? Garments represent righteousness in Revelation 19. So blessed or happy, you could say happy, but blessed means a joy derived from knowing we're on the right road with God. So we who keep our righteousness are on the right road with God. And we're blessed even in the midst of this horrible tribulation that's going to take place. And I say we, I don't mean us because we'll be gone in the rapture. But I mean those people who've turned to Jesus during the tribulation. And then when it says, lest he walk about naked and men see his shame. Well, that's talking about losing the righteousness, turning away from God or not accepting God. And then you're naked in God's eyes. This is a spiritual nakedness, not a physical nakedness that we're talking about because the garments are righteousness. And then in verse 16, we're told where this war is going to take place. And they gather them together, the place which in Hebrew is called Har Megiddon. That means the mountain of Megiddo. We've been to Megiddo. Megiddo is the most strategic battlefield in all of Israel. It's in the northwestern part of it. It overlooks the Jezreel Valley, which is 15 miles kind of triangular, that then allows the enemy to stand in that city and be able to see all around them, as well as to the coastlands. There have been 34 known recorded wars that have taken place on that side because it's so strategic. There are 25 tells there right now. Tells are a mountain in Israel, which has layers of civilizations that are kind of chopped away from the top of the mountain to understand the civilizations that took place before them. The last battle there was 1918 when the British forces defeated the Ottoman Turks. That's where the final battle of the earth is going to take place. But it's not just here. This is a war, but the first battle is going to take place in Megiddo. It's interesting to note that this is a physical place, like you said. We can't emphasize that part enough. There is an actual physical place that has been a battlefield. So that's why this is mentioned. But you mentioned that there were other battles, that this is a war that consists of other battles. So, so there are different elements and aspects of what make up that war. So do you want to tell us more about 
how it's not just one battle, it's many battles. Sure, there are lots of places in Scripture that give us some indication as to things that will happen right about the time Jesus is returning. So we first know that Armageddon, or the Battle of Armageddon at Megiddo, is the gathering of the armies from the east. And it also says from all the armies of the world. Uh, The next thing we read about that we'll read about in Revelation 16 is the destruction of Babylon. That's at the end part of Revelation 16. And then it goes into chapters 17 and 18. So we'll discuss that later. But it's all happening as part of this war that's going to occur. Then we have the fall of Jerusalem. According to Zechariah 12 and 14, Jerusalem will be a cup that causes reeling to all the peoples around. And when the siege is against Jerusalem, it will also be against Judah. In Zechariah 14, it goes a little further to say in verse 2, I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle, and the city will be captured and houses plundered, the women ravished and half the city exiled, but the rest of the people will not be cut off. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. So there's a battle that's going to take place around Jerusalem. We know from Isaiah 63 that Jesus is also going to go to Basra. Basra is also known as Edom or as Petra. And we believe it's very possible the Jews are going to be supernaturally protected by God in that city of Petra in Jordan. As we read Isaiah 63, 1 through 4, it tells us, For who is this who comes from Edom with garments of glowing colors from Basra? This one who is majestic in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I who speak in righteousness, mighty to save. Clearly, that's talking about Jesus Christ. It goes on to say, why is your apparel red and all your garments like the one who treads in the wine press? We've seen that from the previous chapter, and we'll see it again in Revelation 19. That's Jesus Christ, who treads the wine press of the fierce wrath of God during this final war of Armageddon. He ends by saying, I have trodden the wine trough alone, and from the peoples there was no man with me. I also trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath, and their blood is sprinkled in my garments, and I stained all my raiment. It sounds exactly like what's going to happen when Jesus returns and defends his people. Then we also have, according to Joel chapter 3, a discussion about a battle that's going to take place in the Valley of Jehoshaphat. The Valley of Jehoshaphat is on the east side of Jerusalem. So this could be part of that fall of Jerusalem or the Battle of Jerusalem. It reads in Joel chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, Behold, in those days and at that time, when I restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations and bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations and they have divided up my land. You can read later in that chapter in verses 12 through 14, where it says again that he's going to put in the sickle for the harvest is right. Come tread for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their wickedness is great. That's going to be a judgment time. So that might come later rather than earlier at the fall of Jerusalem. And then finally, we know that Jesus is going to stand on the Mount of Olives because Zechariah 14, 4 says that. And so did Acts chapter 1, when Jesus ascended into heaven, his disciples were told that Jesus would return in the exact same way, which was on the Mount 
of Olives. So there are several things that the Bible talks about, several places, several battles that will take place, not just this one battle of Armageddon. So then moving on to 17, the seventh and final bowl judgments, it starts out with air, the last of the four elements, and reads, Then the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. We've heard that phrase before in Scripture. Jesus on the cross said, It is finished. We saw in Revelation 10 that once this final wrath of God was poured out, it would be done. We found out in Revelation 11 that Jesus wins. It just was going to take some time to get there. It is done. What's done? God's wrath has been poured out. It is complete. And in order for it to be complete, these things that follow are going to need to happen. But the context of this verb, when it says it is done, it's in the perfect tense, which means it's being completed. It's the finished results. It's an assertion of fact. So we can depend that this will indeed happen and it will happen at this time. Going on to verses 18 through 21, they tell us things that are going to happen to the earth. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be on the earth. So great an earthquake was it and so mighty. You recall that we saw lots of earthquakes in the book of Revelation. And we were told that earthquakes would increase in these last days. But this is the mother of all earthquakes. Verse 19, and the great city was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell, and Babylon the great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. The great city is always Jerusalem. So Jerusalem is going to be split into three parts. That's not surprising, because if you read Zechariah 14, it tells us that the Mount of Olives is going to be split in the middle. So you have a north part of it, you have the sea going through the center of it, and then you have the southern part. It also tells us in Zechariah 14 that the mountains all around Jerusalem, and they're everywhere in Jerusalem, will go flat except for the Temple Mount, which will be raised up. That's where Jesus will dwell. So we can see a correlation here with what Revelation has to say. After the city of Jerusalem is split apart, Babylon's going to be remembered, and God is going to deal with her. We'll talk about that in the next few weeks. But he's giving Babylon the cup of the wine of his Thumos Orge, the worst kind of wrath one can ever experience. They are finally going to an experience and a judgment that correlates with what we're seeing in the Battle of Armageddon. And we will find out that Babylon represents the religious system. Now, going on to verse 20, it says, And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found. How is that possible? The book of Isaiah tells us in chapter 40, verses 12 through 17, the same thing. You know, God's the creator. He can do anything he wants with his earth. And in this case, that's going to happen. Is it a result of the earthquake or is it God allowing these things? Doesn't matter. The fact is, it's going to happen. So as we go through all these verses of Revelation, we see that God is in control. A lot of people like to talk about Mother Nature, but we're seeing that it is truly Father God who is in control. It makes me think about Isaiah, and we're looking into chapter 40 right now, verses 12 through 17, and it starts out, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand, and marked off the heavens by the span, and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure, 
and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult, and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice, and taught him knowledge, and informed him in the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. Even Lebanon is not enough to burn, nor its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are regarded by him as less than nothing and meaningless. And that's the end of the reading, but you know, it's because his power is so great. He is sovereign over all things. And that passage goes on in verse 18 to say, To whom then will you liken God? There is no one like our God. We have a God who created the heavens and the earth and controls them now. When you think of how the stars and the sun and the moon just all work together because he holds them there in the palm of his hand. Psalm 19.1 says, The heavens are telling of the glory of God, and their expanse is declaring the works of his hands. Day to day pours forth speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. God is such an amazing God. We take it for granted, but there's coming a time when he's going to bring it down on us. It's all going to change. The world will not be the same, and it's going to bring about devastation. Verse 21 tells us, And huge hailstones, about a hundred pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. Did men repent? No. Just as we've seen three times in the book of Revelation, chapter 16, the men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, because its plague was extremely severe. That's just like people today. When bad things happen, they blaspheme God instead of repenting. They blame God. It's all his fault. And yet the rest of their lives, they don't live for God. That's what we're seeing here. It's a total blasphemy of God. This is very similar to the seventh plague of Egypt, according to Exodus 9, the hail and the fire that comes down. When this tells us that hailstones are going to come down that are 100 pounds each, the largest hailstorm recorded in the United States was in Vivian, South Dakota on July 23rd of 2010. It was the size of a volleyball, weighed about two pounds. You can imagine what a 100-pound hailstorm will do to the destruction of the land, the property, and any people that are left in its wake. This is going to be a devastation beyond anything we've ever seen. Well, we've talked about World War I and II being a devastation, but this tribulation is going to be worse than we can ever remember. And Jesus warned us it would be. He said in Matthew 24, For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will it be at the coming of the Son of Man. We're in exactly the same situation. And if you go back and look at Noah, everyone died except Noah and his family because they didn't turn to God. They didn't see what was going to happen. Folks, don't miss the boat. Don't be like the people at the time of Noah. Their focus was on themselves, not on God, and they suffered the consequences. So, too, will the people who are alive at the time when this takes place. Don't wait. Remember, Jesus is coming soon. He can return any time for his believers. No prophecies need to be fulfilled for that to happen. And I want you to be able to go with Jesus when he comes. 
Turn your heart and your soul over to Jesus today. Repent, ask his forgiveness, and give your life to him. And he will give you the hope and the joy that you'll be able to go with him in the rapture of the church and not experience the Thumos wrath of God on earth. Thank you for joining us today on Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank. This is a listener-supported show. If you'd like to support this program or contact Debbie Blank, you may do so at P.O. Box 540-003, Omaha, Nebraska, 68154, or visit our website at livingwordministry.org. Please tune in each week at this same time for Living Word Ministries with Debbie Blank.